Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today we have on the show researcher, professor, sociologist, Dr. Josh Packard from the University of Northern Colorado. Before we get to him, let me get about one other thing you're going to like, and that is Harbor 2020, Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Our friend Mike Cope has put on a great event this year. He's got some speakers that you're going to recognize. James K.A. Smith, friend of the show, Richard Beck, and Kay and Rick Warren, Todd Bolsinger, the author of the popular book Canoeing the Mountains, and our friend Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne and I are going to be doing a couple sessions on the Enneagram, stances, and maybe we might talk a little bit about monsters. I think we should. But there are plenty of other uh, names you're going to recognize on the list. People who are speaking there. Uh, Richard Beck has been brought out, brought back. Our friend Sarah Barton. Wade Hodges. Stormont will be there. Don't let that detract from your attendance. But I hope you join me May 5th through May 8th. If you've never been, uh, this is an event that not only is on a beautiful campus, there are a lot of amazing people there, and I think you should be there too. So come join me May 5th through May 8th. You can go register now. Online, there will be a link in the show notes. And now, on to Josh Packard. Here we go. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have, returning for the second time to the podcast, Dr. Josh Packard. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, and you are coming to us live from the uh, long-term parking, short-term parking at the Denver International Airport. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I'm an academic. I'm in long-term parking. I can't afford the short-term stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, good for you. I've had some uh, some memorable experiences at that airport. I uh, passed out once on a flight that landed in Denver, and another time I almost uh, missed a flight. So I hope your experience there is better than mine has been. Neither of those things have ever happened to me, so we'll see. Fingers crossed. Wait, I mean, it could. Don't uh, I- Don't dispel that as an option. I was saying, fingers crossed that it does. I'd love to have a story to tell about passing out in an airplane. That seems okay. like well, that seems great. It, yeah, it, it was a pretty good story. Um, I'll I'll <laughs> tell it to you in its entirety some other time. Uh, sure. The uh, the person the the uh, air, what is the term that you do? Do we call them airline stewardess anymore? Is that that's not the right term? I feel like we've moved flight attendants. Flight attendant. There it is. There I yeah. went all like Mad Men. Uh, Don Draper on you right there. Um, <laughs> wow, that was rough. Um, well, but that part with the scotch and the cigarette that you're that you've got right now. <laughs> Nobody can see you on the video, but <laughs> hey, that's how I get through these conversations. <laughs> the uh, the uh, flight attendant, uh, I passed out. She like comes to like, or I wake up and she's there like staring at me, and uh, get off the plane, and then I end up at the very same terminal where she's waiting to get on her next flight. And I go up to her and say, hey, how you doing? And she's literally disgusted to see me. She's like, oh, yeah, you again. So she's anyway, like, oh, whatever. Man, we're going to fly out this guy again. Yeah, this guy, <laughs> Mr. Passing Out. She probably thought I was high or something since, you know, that's Denver. People do that, I guess. But um, that was not <laughs> sure, the case. Yeah. The, uh, the, there's been some, um, some vitriol I've received because recently I made a comment about Denver. And so I wanted to get you as someone who lives in Denver, literally in Denver as we speak right now, back on yeah. the podcast to, to I, I guess I want you to validate as an academic that what I said was completely true about Denver, that it's, it's maybe not the prettiest city in the world, contrary to popular opinion. Okay. Um, 
so this is I think this is exactly where my expertise comes into play because I have a PhD in sociology. So this is yep. a very clear this is a very clear fit. Um, yep. <laughs> no, you're wrong. It's uh, the the weather. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference what the city is like. The weather here is great all year long. It's sunny like 330 days a year or something. Who cares what the city looks like? Okay, fine. But what mm-hmm. I hear is a tacit agreement that what I don't care what the city looks like, the weather's good. So I'll take that as a win. I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, this is a religion podcast. I say things and you interpret them the way you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in strong. Wow. The interdisciplinary smack talk. Okay. Um, no, I believe it's called Midrash. That's what I do. Okay. And it is... Yeah. Uh, uh, my education, while I didn't go to Vanderbilt and get a PhD, my Master's of Divinity degree says I'm allowed to do that kind of stuff. For sure. 100%. Yeah, that's, that's right. Okay, uh, you're back on the podcast. People, they should remember that you're a sociologist. If not, you just said it on the podcast. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk about kind of the landscape of church. And last time we talked, you were still a Christian, and you still were a part of a church. <laughs> I feel like those things are probably still true. Is that correct? Yes, both those things are still true. In fact, same church. Yes, yes. As, as last time. So yeah, and our mutual friend, uh, Pastor Jeff. Does mm-hmm. he go by Pastor? Is he called Community Leader? Yeah. No, Pastor. I think. It's, I mean, I call him Jeff. Yeah, that's what I call him too. But he is your pastor, <laughs> yeah. and he's uh, the reason that we know each other. But uh, okay, so you've been a part of church. You grew up in a religious home. You're yeah. You have Dallas ties, right? Your dad's there now. Mm-hmm. Did. Yeah, no, I grew up in Southlake actually, way before it was, right. it, but way before it was what Southlake is now. I mean, I, I you know I drove past cows going to, to school. Like we had a we had a reasonably decent football team, but not anything on national television back then. I mean, it's a wholly different place now. Um, so yeah, a lot, big strong long ties to Dallas. Grew up in my dad is Catholic and my mom was Lutheran. They had a, a, an actual coin toss at the dinner table one night that my dad lost, so I went to the Lutheran church with my mom, and then. Uh, on the Texas Lutheran University. I'm pretty sure that if that coin toss had come out the other way, my mom would have been like best two out of three, double or nothing. You know, she was going to go until she won. <laughs> that, uh, I, yeah, I'm not an expert on this, but I feel like that's how most um, marriages yeah. typically work <laughs> out. But again, that's, them, yeah. that's, that's outside of my expertise. Okay. Um, but uh, the landscape of church, uh, yeah. as a pastor, I see it one way. As someone who's, trainees in sociology, and that's what your expertise is, uh, and as someone who is connected to the religious community, you've done some work uh, with the church landscape in general, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I think the, the right way to think about this is that I'm a sociologist of religion, meaning I study national trends about religion and, and sort of where the country is headed and why. But I'm also a religious sociologist. So, you know, I do, I do have a certain amount of like background that's personal here, and, and we try to separate those things as much as possible, but invariably there's some overlap. And, uh, and a lot of it is just sort of like what, what, you know, what sort of connections I have to be able to study things that maybe other people don't. So a few years ago, I wrote a book called Church Refugees about why people keep their faith but leave the church. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of right at that intersection of me being, you know, both an academic but also a religious person where these people would sort of make themselves known to me. Um, and I thought, well, there's something here that's worth paying attention to. And it really opened up a sort of a crack for me into understanding bigger issues that are going on. I mean, I think the, the issue of the Duns, as we called them uh, in that book with my co-author, Ashley Hope, who was a student of mine at the time, that's an issue, but, and, but, it's, but, it's a, but it's sort of like an outcome of things that are going on 
at the time, I think more underneath the service and now are sort of bubbling up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you were on last time, that's, we talked about that book, right? Yeah, and yeah it's been a few years. Mind. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so the, the idea of people keeping the faith, uh, leaving church, yeah. would be like when you magnify that and you look at the big trends, if you look at it from the, the big down, uh, it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Because what we see kind of across the board, from my perspective, you know, obviously correct me, is that in the last, I don't know how long back you have to go, but people are going to church far less often than they used to. Uh, if they were a yeah. self-identified Christian, the amount of times that they are in a church building uh, per month has dropped. It's, I, I mean, and anecdotally, I can see people, you know, 10 years ago who were going, you know, three plus times a month are now going one and a half times a month. And yeah. that's just a normal kind of reality. It, and you're saying you're nodding your green. That's the, the, yeah, the data I, confirms I mean, that. Absolutely. I, I'm very curious about what that, that um, half time a month looks like for your for your congregants do they come yeah. for like part of the service but leave when they, the sermon starts or something they they get offended by one of <laughs> the jokes i make at the beginning of the sermon and then they leave, <laughs> and then they leave. um but, no that's right even even scholars have uh altered in recent years what we consider to be regular attendance from being weekly to something that's more like once or twice a month um yeah. just to just to account for that and there's a whole the, what's really interesting about that particular conversation about attendance is, I mean, there's a host of, like, I think, theological and religious concerns about, like, well, why do we care about attendance in the first place? And then secondly, there's this whole other set of things about why people aren't going as much, you know, from a demographic sort of social standpoint, you know, from, and, and there's a lot of reasons about that. And we can talk about those if you want. Yeah, no, I, I think anecdotally people look at that in, like, pastors would look at that and go, well, uh, we can see what they're posting online, what they're doing. We can see, okay, now mm-hmm. it's, you know, they, they've got some sort of kids' sports activity that uh, now yeah. has crept into Sunday morning instead of just being on Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon, maybe. But it's it's now that, oh, yeah, yeah, we've got to go to the sporting event. We're going to go. We're going to skip church. Whereas you know, 20, 30 years ago, that would have never been acceptable. And in my tradition, it was we learned about grace, and all of a sudden there's no this fear-based uh, motivator that you have to be in church three times a week. And now mm. it's, you know, we haven't, we haven't created and replaced that like fear driven uh, model with some sort of like more, uh, you know, more meaningful and more, I, I guess, healthy understanding of why it's important to be in community with people. We haven't replaced mm-hmm. that. Right. I think that's, that's, I think that's really true. There's some other, there's some bigger social trends that have been going on that also drive that after. So, so when I talked to you, I think, I think the book was either about to come out or had just come out. And then after that, we did this national survey sort of trying to understand if people are walking out of the church but keeping their faith, what are they doing with all this time and how are they living out their faith? And one of the really, I think, surprising things for me and interesting things that came out with, like, what are they doing on Sunday mornings now if they're not going to church? They were spending it doing things that I think most of us would consider to be, like, important and good things. They were spending it with their families. Um, Some of them were using it for rest and relaxation. Um, They were, you know, outside. They weren't, like, it's not like they were you know, saying like, I don't go to church on Sunday mornings anymore because I'm hungover from the night before. I don't care about yep. God or any of those things. Yep. And when you look at the national sort of, I, I think one of the things that the church has done a really poor job of understanding is the economic and demographic trends that have been occurring. And one of the things that really matters here has to do with real wages. Um, real wages in this country have been more or less stagnant for the last 25 or 30 years. Can you define so that when, Yeah, just so like, what is your dollar, you know, what is your dollar buying? Okay. Um, the 
and, and how much discretionary income do people have? And so the way Americans have been backfilling with this is to work longer hours, be more productive and work more jobs. That's a, that is not congruent with then spending the little bit of free time that you might have in something else that can, for a lot of people, feel like work, like, you know, church. Hmm. So the idea that somebody, you know, that people are working, there's more people working more hours than ever before in this country, it's not shocking that they might want some time off and, and you know, that increasing that might happen on Sunday mornings. Um, but the church doesn't deal with those issues. You know, the church doesn't largely, a lot of, in fact, I was just at a conference a couple of months ago talking about this. And somebody characterized the women, uh, this is a very sexist approach, and they're characterizing the women who are choosing to work outside of the home as not caring enough about their families um, and, you know, nurturing their kids' faith lives and being home for them. And I was like, but the church doesn't do anything for them economically, you know, to, to sort of make up for the fact that now, like, in order to make ends meet, we see more people taking on more jobs. You've got more two-parent household, uh, two, two parents or two fam- uh, two guardians, whatever, working outside of the house. So there's a lot of other like things going on out there besides just what the church's response is and, and how people may or may not value religious experiences in the collective. When you said uh, churches aren't doing anything uh, like to offset that, give us more about what, what you were implying well, by that. Yeah, I mean, you don't see, I mean, generally speaking, you know, churches aren't getting involved in like the... Uh, um, the movement for, you know, like say a livable wage as opposed to a minimum wage. Like that would be, that would be one thing that, that would help. I I think if churches, like from my perspective, anyway, if churches were like really involved in this, in this movement to say like, Oh, people should be able to make a livable wage working, you know, 40 hours a week. Then I think they would have a lot more grounds for saying like, and we should, you should justifiably spend some more of your time here. But they've also like largely kept to the same kind of um, outside of like some pockets the church is largely kept to the same Sunday morning, you know, show up from this time to this time where the rest of the world is moving. Even the work world moves to like digital work from at home, you know, work from home, remote um, pop-up communities. I mean, there's just a lot of innovation that's going on out there that, that takes time and place and, and tries to make them as malleable as possible. The church seems very stuck in this, you know, lane where it has to happen here. It has to happen at this time. And it has to happen the way I say that it has to happen. And that's com- increasingly sort of incongruent with the way that people are spending the rest of their lives. Hmm. Bunch of thoughts on that. The, I, 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 again, like uh, I, I think you should make it clear. That's not a judgment. Like I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I just mean that like it helps to explain, I think, and, and maybe drive some understanding about why we might be seeing some of those results that we're seeing. Yeah, no, no. no. I, and I think we see the digital church idea popping up a little bit, and I, I've got mm-hmm. deep questions about the uh, formative effect of reducing church to simply watching a sermon online. You know, I, I right. hear people totally talk agree. about that, and you know, your last podcast, you made some terrible comments about how unimportant sermons are, so you know, that's <laughs> why I led the conversation with, are you even a Christian anymore? Uh, but yeah. when, it's, when it's that sort of like, I'm just going to watch, I think that like there's some serious problems about what really is going to happen. But I do think the shift from, uh, you know, going multiple times a week to coming a a time and a half a month uh, is reflective of the fact that what's most important um, of what they're still going to is the experience on Sunday morning where no, very rarely do we hear people in my kind of religious world saying, you know, I'm going to show up for a a care group three times a month. That's going to be a priority. And if we can Mm -hmm. come to a service on Sunday morning, it's always church is still synonymous with the Sunday morning worship experience, which as someone who gets paid to to organize one of those, I'm deeply committed in that. But Mm -hmm. 
I think what we're finding is that that the idea of people wanting the kind of community and connection that is often kind of described is actually seen as not the priority compared to some sort of like worship experience that kind of which I think is very meaningful, but it seems like that's prioritized. When you look at the research, yeah, is there anything that's kind of going that direction from your perspective? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't think that both personally and academically, I don't think that like churches, like this online platform that you reference, like I think that's probably a terrible idea. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of space in a hybrid approach or where like, I just, I don't think that the, the sort of digital and virtual has been leveraged enough, but I don't think it should replace because what people keep telling us that they really want is this, like, you know, they live, they live so much. All of us live so much of our lives are, uh, in, in ways that are not very connected to each other. Um, and what they keep telling us that they want on surveys and on, and in interviews and other things is that they want connection. They want, they want community. I mean, I don't think that the collective worship experience has, diminished in terms of its importance in people's lives when they get to do it in a setting that they feel really affirmed and, you know, challenged and mm-hmm. valued. But it, it's just increasingly that's you know, often that's just not an option for them. But when I hear connection, I think go be a part of some sort of, you know, intimate, you know, 12 people together, that sort of connect. That's what I think. Uh, maybe that's just yeah. the pastor person going, that's, this is where connection happens. But I think people see it as the big room. There is a connection there that even if it's devoid of the actual, like, Hey, this is what's going on in my life. And this is, you know, yeah. my kids struggle and this is who I, I you know, what I should pray for. Like none of that's there, but that is the connection that it seems that if you notice how people are voting with their feet, that's what they're voting most for. <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of this, I mean, if you pay attention to, you know, Pew and Gallup and some of those studies about the people, the, the religious nuns, uh, you know, when, we, when they ask the question of, like, which which religious affiliation do you have? And it's like Christian, Protestant, Christian, Catholic, Muslim, you know, Hindu, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. The last one is always no affiliation, and that's where that term nuns comes from. And this is where we see a lot of, we, we start to see a lot of breakdown along uh, generational lines, for lack of a better term. Younger people are more likely to check the box. None. They're more likely than older people, and they're more likely than they've ever been. Um, but there's some really interesting work by Elizabeth Drescher and others showing that the people who check the box as none aren't necessarily not religious. They are just unwilling, in many cases, to identify with an institutional religion, which is super, uh, super important point. And in fact, it's one of the things that got us thinking about um, whether like how whether this is a church problem or if there's something going on about institutions more generally so I started looking into this the, the issue of, of institutional trust and Gallup and others have been tracking this for a long time and when you look at the data about how Americans trust institutions and you can probably just think about this through your own family like that that's the easiest way for me to understand it like when I think about my grandfather and how you know, he worked for Lando Lake's large, you know, institution um, in Minnesota. He, you know, which was great for him. Um, he fought in World War II, which was awesome um, in terms of like the American military being able to overcome this massive thing, um, this clear source of evil in the world. He went through public education, was able to retire, like all these institutional benefits, right? But then you, you start looking at the, how those numbers shift from that generation to when you ask young people, like younger and younger people, about how much they trust institutions, and, and it's just a drop off a cliff. And it's not just religion. It's all – like they don't trust the church. They don't trust education. They don't trust the government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
in the face of that, you know, we've seen a lot of innovation and change in, in all kinds of other sectors, but the church has sort of stayed more or less stagnant and said, what? you know, like they still operate as though like they're a trusted source of morality, knowledge, importance, and, and they sort of failed to realize that they have to earn that trust. They can't be assumed anymore. What are some examples of other large institutions that have made changes in light of the current zeitgeist, which is antithetical yeah. towards institutions? Yeah, so think about the, um, I mean, you live in Austin, which is like Hippieville, USA, so you'll understand this. The the Like yeah. how many farmers markets have you seen pop up in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years or 20 years? Yeah. Like you think about Whole Foods, which is like a farmer's market with walls, right? And sort of capitalizing on that move. So every time that we've seen this decline in institutional trust, what we've seen is this alternative, um, these alternative solutions that come up, and they all have the same things in common. They're smaller, and they're more local, and they're more contextualized. Um, now, sometimes they get co-opted. Like Walmart is now the biggest seller of organic foods in the country, or Costco, one of the two. Um, hmm. But that movement towards the organic um, didn't come from them. It came from the grassroots. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're a beer drinker, but in Colorado, we've got like a microbrewery on every corner. I mean, do you remember a few years ago, there was this Super Bowl commercial and I think it was, I don't know, Budweiser or something. And it was like, do you know who brews your beer? And, I, and all of my friends in Colorado were sitting around like, yep, I actually do know who brews my beer, yeah. which yeah. is a super weird thing because, you know, at least when I went to college, there were like four different kinds of beer. You picked which one you like, which of these four you like the best. Yeah. Um, which is a, a very and, Denver illustration there. I fully respect you going that direction. Well, so even on the, like, think about, like, financial institutions. We've just come through this financial crisis that a lot of my students in particular are still affected and impacted by because their families lived through this, lost homes, lost jobs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, when I, and if you look at the data about the, the like, people moving to cash-only budgets, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm, not just, I'm not talking about the, um, oh, who's the Christian guy Dave who Ramsey? says you could keep... Yeah, I'm not Dave. talking about Dave Ramsey. I'm saying like they keep all of their money in cash, like in their dorm room, which was blowing me away. Oh, and then I realized wow. like they don't have they don't have any money, so it doesn't really matter. But <laughs> the um, that's terrifying. Yeah, very. But the but it's less terrifying for them. And I, there's actual data you can go out and look up on this. And it's not a huge movement, but but it was less terrifying to them than keeping their money in a bank. Which is about that was trust for institution. Oh my goodness! Exactly. Wow. Like that was more. That was scarier to them than you know. And again, like they don't have tons of money to lose, but um, but that's you know, that they all, speaks they to would the, all, yeah yeah exactly exactly. They all had checking accounts and things like that. They just kept you know very small amounts of money in them and kept most of it with them because they yeah. Even the, like, I'm like, no, you're like, and when I would explain to them, you know, all the things that should inspire confidence there, I'm like, no, your money's protected by the federal government up to like, whatever it is, $250,000 or something, which they don't have that much money. So it doesn't matter. Um, none of those things provide a source of comfort for them anymore because that's just an institution backing another institution. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So obviously the church needs to take note of this. We need to be aware of it. One of the things that when I was a church planner years ago, I would have the conversation over and over again when someone would say, oh, you're a pastor. Great. Uh, you know, what kind of church are you part of? And I say, it's non-denominational. And they go, oh, that's great. We like non-denominational. E- even just the name non-denominational, which in itself is kind of, you know, a pseudo-denomination at this point, has right. has far more like preferential reception from people because it's, quote unquote, you know, less institutional than a traditional denomination, sure. yeah. So I, I fully get that. Uh, people are less likely to do that. Uh, this obviously is affecting how 
a younger generation is perceiving faith and religious community and belonging in ways that, you know, older generations, they see the effects of it. Their, their life is right. in some ways different, but it's probably more radical for the younger, uh, the younger generation. I know you've done research with this, your, your organization, which is springtime research institution or institute. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? Yep. You recently put out some uh, some some of the findings that you guys have come along with uh, on young people specifically, and by young people you're saying yeah. thirteen to twenty five. Yep. Right. And yeah. no, I was gonna say what's fascinating is that the sense of like belonging and a lack of connection is so apparent with this generation. And the easy response is, well, yeah. you're always on your phone. That's what is what it is. But you're saying no, no there's a there's a bigger, more sy- systemic issue. Yeah. I mean, they are always on their phones. That's true. Um, and, and you're not going to change that. <laughs> Somebody brought that up a few weeks ago to me and they're like, well, what, you know, they're always on their phones. Like, well, okay. I, I agree with you. They are. And you're not going to change that. So what are you going to do about it? No. Um, or do with it? The, so yeah, at Springtide, our focus is 13 to 25 year olds. So, you know, we really wanted to understand this through the lens of like, oh, what are the, you know, what are the outcomes that we're starting to see, you know, from this two or three decade long erosion of public trust in, mm-hmm. in institutions and this sort of, change in lifestyle from going to religious services. In fact, when we asked the Gallup and, other, and others who have asked about trust in institutions, they don't go down to 13. They only go to 18. Yeah. Why do you, um, go, why do you go to 13? So we, it's 13 for two reasons. One, 13 is generally about the, the age that most, tra- most religious traditions and other cultural traditions have a sort of like coming of age. Like that's when the beginning of that might happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, say through a bar mitzvah or confirmation or something like that, but also um, and for a pragmatic reason, legally in this country, that's as low as you can go down. Like we would have loved to have gotten data from 11 and 12 year olds, but um, 13 is the, the, you you can, you can can get, you can, uh, you just can't, you have to go through a lot more hoops to get consent. So if you're buying, say a panel of young people, of of research, of survey respondents from across the country, um, like, you know, your apps and your digital companies where that information is collected and aggregated, can't collect data from people under 13. Okay. Got it. Um, Okay, so 13 to so 25. Anyway, the, yeah, 25 seems 25. like it's a pretty big spectrum right there. 12 years? Yeah, so what we wanted to do was go up to about, like, we wanted to go up to the point at which we knew that people would be more or less leaving the house and the, the, their, their home of origin. The, the which data is happening later that, now, right? Exactly, that's what I was just about to say. So instead of that being, you know, at first we thought about 21 or 22 when you might traditionally graduate from college, but most people in college now are quote-unquote non-traditional students, meaning they're not, directly from high school and 18 to 22 years old. So we pushed that up to 25 because that seems to be where, you know, the, as you said, that's been happening later and later. And by 25, you know, that seems to be about the age that that's happening more. It, there's still people living at home after that, but it starts to fall off pretty dramatically. Yeah. And so uh, what is the term that some have used? Uh, delayed adolescence uh, to describe yeah, that? Yeah, delayed adolescence. Uh, right. Which, um, that's a nice way to say that. Uh, but anyway, uh, but what you're finding, as you look at this large <laughs> yeah. swath of young people with this anti-institutional sort of bent, is they're lonelier than ever. Man, so uh, we, it's our first study, and it'll come out in March. It's called Belonging, Reconnecting America's Loneliest Generation. And we were really motivated at Springtide by um, this big study that came out by Cigna a few years ago. And um, uh, not even a few years ago, maybe two years ago, about social isolation in America. And there's this really common index used to measure isolation by, put out by UCLA researchers some years ago. And for years, this has been exactly what you would expect. It's been older, you know, the older generations are more socially isolated because, you know, their networks are dying off. They often move to, 
you know, home. So they don't know as many people. They're not as physically able to get out, et cetera, et cetera. For the first time in uh, 2000 and I think it was 18, when they measured social, when Cigna measured social isolation, uh, young people were at the top of the list. It was, they were higher on their score than they've ever been. And they were higher than any other group of people. And that was alarming because isolation, um, loneliness comes with all kinds of spiritual consequences. It comes with all kinds of health consequences, not to mention economic ones as well, which are sort of um, of a tertiary concern there. So we, we wanted to dig into that and, again, drill down all the way to 13-year-olds and start to understand sort of why that happens and if there are any buffers around it. And, and what we found was sort of was really shocking. I mean, I think for your audience, you know, first of all, just to establish that, like, you know, one in three young people um, feel say that they feel completely alone much of the time. And nearly 40% say that they have no one to talk to or feel left out sometimes or always. Wow. Those are staggering numbers to me um, and, and heartbreaking. Is there any way we could compare that to, you know, 15 years ago? Well, it, like how, how much mm. of this is a, a major <clears throat> excuse me, a shift from where it was years in the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, uh, those are two questions that are asked on that longer UCLA index. And so these numbers are substantially, significantly higher than they were 10 or 15 years ago, enough to push young people to the, again, to the top of that framework. So it's not just that it's like, oh, well, that's part of being young is that you feel alone. Um, this is, this is new, not, not in terms of its existence. Young people have always reported this, but it's new in terms of its magnitude for sure. Yeah. Okay. When we get this information, young people are more disconnected. They feel alone. Um, there's all the discussion about you know causation versus correlation, and yeah, I, I, that's above my pay grade to figure that stuff out. But <laughs> but but there but there I mean, I'll let you say that if, if you have anything specific about that. Otherwise, I'll move to my next question. Well, I'll just say that I think that often I mean I want to be very careful about about the causation um, conversation because I do think it's an important one, and you're right. Correlation does not equal causation. So the way that we talk about this being related to other things might, you know, you, you can draw your own conclusions there about causation. But my experience has been in talking about church refugees and other things with religious audiences is that they use the lack of direct causal um, proof to dismiss what is happening. So I'm not sure that it matters if we know why young people are isolated. Mm-hmm. But I do know that it matters that young people are isolated. Yep. Yep. Yeah, um, that's pretty solid. Yeah, so I, I, I think that that's a you know, regardless of again, it's like it, for me, it's the phone conversation. It's like, well, they're always on the phone, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, what Next are you going to do with that? Like, yeah. right? I, I, you know, I get that that's a challenge, um, it's, and you you know, you're paid to do hard things. It's kind of like the dentist who says, "Yeah, but kids are drinking sodas now." And they have sodas all the time, right. or, or Gatorade, or you know whatever. And you go, yeah, th- yeah, that's what people drink now. You've got to like figure out what to do in light of that. Um, right. Kids have phones. That's that's the reality. You got to figure it out. I, you know, God bless teachers who have to deal with that uh, day in yep. and day out. M- much much respect for y'all. Okay, but the solution you're saying um, is relationships. Uh, th- this past yeah. Sunday, we had uh, at our church our uh, baby dedication. And one of the things mm-hmm. that, you know, we've started to say a whole lot, and I, you know, just said it a couple days ago, was <clears throat> we, <clears throat> sorry, I'm choking up over here because I can't talk. Um, 
that for every kid in our church, they need five connections with adults at our church. If we yep. if we want to see them, you know, twenty years from now, like connected, a part of a religious community, especially ours, um, it takes five adult relationships, which is mind blowing to think about it. But I, I can't. I don't. Even, I don't know how y'all arrived at that, Luke. But I can't even tell you how right that is. Um, I mean, the, the at least from the data idea. that we're hearing. All my yeah, idea. great. That's you should totally it. take credit for it. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know what else you're doing besides saying it at the dedication to make it happen, but that is really at the heart of, of where religious institutional, you know, efforts need to be. So we, you know, coming out of the, from the, the background that we came at this from, I thought, like, we're going to ask some questions about religious participation because, like, surely this is a buffer, like we're going to, I think my, like my hypothesis was this, we're going to find a lot of loneliness and isolation. And that's largely going to be, you know, driven by the fact that like young people are less connected to religious groups. So when we separate that out and compare religious and non-religious young people, we're going to find that the non-religious young people have, you know, significantly higher rates of loneliness and isolation. And they're the ones really driving this trend. And, but the crazy thing that happened is that when we looked at the data, there was no buffering effect because of religious attendance, really? not just for Christians, but across the board, attending a religious service had no, no antidotal impact on, uh, on being lonely or lonely or isolated. In other words, the kids, the young people sitting in your pews who are disc, you know, we'll get to this in a second, but just because they're sitting in your pews or coming to your Wednesday night things, um, or your, you know, your lock-ins or whatever you're doing for young people, um, or your college group or whatever, that does not mean that they are less likely to feel lonely and isolated, which was shocking to us. The key, what, so as we kept digging into that through interviews and other things uh, and the survey was, it, it came back to this notion of a relationship with a trusted adult. That's what made the difference. It wasn't attendance. It was whether or not you had a relationship with a trusted adult at that place. Um, now, the problem is that young people don't often. So like a third of young people, including their parents, a third of young people have one or fewer adult in their life that they feel like they could trust. Wow. One it, third of young people. And that, again, that includes mom and dad, if they have mom and dad in the home. I mean, wow. The, I, I guess the evidence would have communicated this, but I'm curious as to why it's not, well, if you have three good friends, if it's three peers that you're connected yeah. to, why is it? I mean, I don't know if you can answer that, but not- <laughs> no, no, we have data about this too. Peers do matter, um, but peers can, I don't know if, I don't know what your high school and college experiences were like, but you know, peers can be often as detrimental as it can be <laughs> helpful. <laughs> like the people isolating you a lot of times are your friends um, or your quote unquote friends. And so peers, peers mattered and they had is, but they didn't have a consistent sort of buffering effect because of the, you know, even sometimes like the relationship that was good six months ago isn't good now. What does seem to have that consistent, um, that consistent uh, positive effect is the is the adult presence, the trusted adult presence. And and so, I, like to me, this has like I'll just speak from my own tradition because I don't need to get into, you know, imagining what it would have been like if I'd grown up in a synagogue. But the like going to like youth group on Wednesday nights, it was there was some programming. Right, there was like a thing we were supposed to do, and then at some point the youth director would would say some things at us, and we may or may not talk about those, and then we would have like hangout time. But the there was no particular like there wasn't necessarily a systematic effort to make a connection with an adult or even with the youth director who was the adult in the room at the time. 
Um, for some of us, that happened because we found ourselves in leadership roles. But for a lot of people who you'd watch sort of drift in and out of my youth group, you would realize like they were having the same experience that I was, but they weren't having the same experience that I was because they weren't getting that connection. Like they would come and hear the same things and do the same things, but they never felt super like they belonged there. Um, wow. And the yeah. data here totally confirmed that. I mean, I'll just give you, I'll just give you one quick, um, one quick rundown. We've got several of these in the report, but the number of people who say that they feel completely alone have zero trust If you have no trusted adults, 66 percent of those young people say they feel completely alone. If you get just one trusted adult, that number goes from 66 to 46. And if you get to five trusted adults, that magic number that you were talking about, it goes all the way down to nine. Wow. Wow. So only 9% of the young people with five adults in their lives that they trust feel completely alone. And that's a, like down from 66 with zero, right? Like that's there's amazing. something about, yeah, like there's something about the trusted adult that provides like this sort of North star or this consistency in the very tumultuous years between 13 and 25, where, you know, friends are coming and going. You don't necessarily know who you are all the time. Your interests, you know, wax and wane and different things. Uh, and so to have somebody whose life is like sort of, together <laughs> and settled and then yeah. you can talk to is just really crucial yeah yeah so when uh, this is going to surprise you but the number of five adults that uh, i just spoke of was not you know created by me the youth and the uh children's <laughs> ministers that i work with they said that and i was like all right i'll just regurgitate your information but when we when we say that it seems like wow that's um yeah, that's a big commitment i mean you have, you have to have a lot of yeah. people it takes an entire village to raise a child and it it's not always easy because it's not always easy even to get uh, you know parents to to you know to drive their kids to come to events or to get them to show up or you know it, it seems yeah. like such a, a daunting thing to go okay one more thing I have to do now is I've got to f- find a, a kid or two that I'm going to have this relational connection to that you know they can lean on me um, yeah I, I agree I think there's some freeing news in this too which is. Um, at a conference back uh, two or three months ago, I was saying this, and I was, I was I, I didn't realize that this would be a, a big point, but it was a bunch of youth workers. It was a national Catholic youth, whatever conference. And I said, we need to stop leading with programs and start leading with relationships. And they, it was a standing ovation. They stopped me in the middle of the talk and, and stood up and clapped. And, and I realized in that moment, like what I was doing was giving them cover to take back to their bosses to say like, we're going to, it's time to stop counting the number of people who show up to an event. And so I get that it's one more, it sounds like potentially one more thing to do, but I think embedded here also is some things that you can stop doing. Hmm. Like there's a whole bunch of program work that's going on and a whole bunch of counting of things to justify jobs and positions and programs. And I get that some of that always has to happen. We need better metrics. And I understand that that's still a challenge. Um, but we can at least, I think, begin to pull back from some of those in light of the things that we're learning like from, from here and from other places. So what I'm hearing you say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea of getting someone to just attend the lock-in, as you called it, which I love the old school name of lock-in. I don't know. Do people still um, do lock-ins? I don't I, I had lock-ins. <laughs> like, I did youth ministry for two summers, and I'm still traumatized. Like, I'm, I'm not good late yeah. night, and, you know, I'm, just, I'm not that nice. But... Um, the idea of like how many people were there Sunday morning for you know Bible class is not as connected to the effect of church uh, and spirituality and, and the you know the the health of that kid compared to how many people does this does this you know child look up to and think this is a north star that I can kind of like count on them to be there for me. 
Yeah, it's a really good way of saying it. Like, actually, is the like think about what you want your outcomes to be. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want your outcomes to be attendance, then by all means, keep measuring attendance and make whatever you're doing as attractional as possible. But don't confuse attendance with impact, mm-hmm. because what you know. Whereas once upon a time, and it's not because I don't think that that model ever worked. It's not you know. I think a lot of people can get very defensive here, and it's that I, I think we did a really great job, especially in the Christian Protestant Church in America of making things that were very attractional and got a, you know, a lot of attendance for a long time. And I think that model really worked. But at some point when you reach this new cultural reality of lack of institutional trust, lack of time, lack of attendance, it just doesn't work now. It's the same like when you wanted to watch, whenever you wanted to last watch a movie, uh, whatever, you know, last week, last night, mm-hmm. whatever, you didn't go to Blockbuster and rent that movie. Yeah. Right. Like the, the world has changed. And, and so that distribution model has changed. And so this is not to say that the old model is bad. It just doesn't work now. It, yeah. And to think that just getting people to come to an event is going to create a great quote unquote youth ministry or a healthy church. That's not, I mean, obviously that's not the answer. The, exactly. the idea is like there are, you need to have events. You need to have things that people attend sure. so that the relationships can, uh, can be fostered in that environment. Not that the environment itself is the end, but the, the relationship is the end, right. the end. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, you know, reframing. And it's also, like you're saying, like, we like numbers, we like to have metrics, we like to have, you know, counting heads and nickels and noses and all that stuff is really great. But, <laughs> right. but I think what we're finding is that we need to have relationships front and center. And that's, that's going to be more problematic for, for someone who wants a simple answer of how are we doing? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I think it, it can, it can really, you know, I, I've done some of this work, you know, myself, and I know how it can feel like you're doing nothing to sit and listen repeatedly to a young person. Uh, but, but the data I think is pretty conclusive that you're not doing nothing. Like mm-hmm. you're in some ways, just by sitting and listening, you're actually doing the most important thing yeah. um, that can be done. But it's, again, it's a difficult thing to measure. Yeah. There are ways to do it. It's just difficult. Like what, what like what are ways to do it? Well, the, there's a, um, there's a what I think is probably a really innovative chapter of Youth for Christ here in my community. My wife works there, running a bike program, um, taking in old bikes, fixing them up, giving them out to people who are yeah. immigrants who are on parole, et cetera, need transportation. And there's several other programs that they run. But one of the things that I really like is that about being involved over there is that they they have taken the milestones that YFC National has come up with about faith development and formation, and the executive director there built. Um, an app because that's a skill set that he has. And so the whole staff tracks every interaction with every kid who comes through our doors and then they map them onto those milestones. So at any point with, if you find yourself and, and it's a, 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 you know, a kid walks in or you're talking to a kid, um, you can know exactly where they are on their journey. Um, probably because you just know them, but even if you don't have a relationship with them, you can look it up. And then that's also used to drive because we believe so heavily in these things. That's actually what we use to drive you know, performance reviews and evaluating programs and other things. We take all the data from that and are like, okay, well, you know, how many, you know, does this lead to young people developing, you know, a deeper relationship or our relationship period? And we deal with a lot of misfits and kids who are ostracized. So they're coming to us often for non-religious reasons, of course, a relationship or a deeper or deepening relationship with God in some way. Um, Hmm. And that's, it, it's it's not super rock, like rocket science, but it does require thinking outside of the box a little bit because it wasn't that long ago that we were also just counting numbers. Yeah, no, that's you're right. That's you're one hundred percent right. Okay, uh, you said in March that uh, the actual results from the study will be made public. 
Yeah, March 30th. You can go to springtideresearch.org uh, and pre-order now if you want um, or get on our mailing list to be notified. Cool. So they can find out more information there. And uh, Absolutely. In the meantime, uh, enjoy Denver. And uh, I know it's going to be challenging. I will. That's why there's so much beer there, <laughs> I guess. But... Uh, <laughs> I was I was I was snow skiing in short sleeves like three days ago. It was like forty five degrees and sunny, and I was skiing. Yeah, I took a walk three days ago, and the amount of cedar pollen that uh, I <laughs> inhaled uh, led me to like being a hot like shower, and then like injecting my face with uh, with medicine right. for the rest of the night. So you know, we we all have our beauties that we it's get. The same, yeah. It's basically the exact same. Six of one, half dozen of the other, right? Exactly. Well, the good doctor, <laughs> thank you for your time. And uh, safe travels. Thanks for yeah, checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>